Today on the Matt Wall Show, you may not have heard about it, but the government is now kicking kids out of school in order to turn them into illegal migrant shelters. The same is happening at airports and pretty soon your own home. Also, the cowardly governor of Ohio is humiliated once again when his veto of an anti-child castration bill is overridden. California moves to ban tackle football for kids. I'll explain why that is a horrible idea. And Hollywood actors write a letter claiming that Jewish people aren't represented in Hollywood. What exactly do people even mean anymore when they talk about representation? We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. If you're looking to save money this year but don't want to sacrifice the quality of life you're used to, Pure Talk has your back. Instead of paying your current cell phone provider $60, $70, or $80 a line, Pure Talk has unlimited plans starting at just $20 a month. You'll get the same phenomenal coverage that you're used to on America's most dependable 5G network for just $20 a month. This is how the average family saves almost $1,000 a year. It's time to switch to a wireless company that shares your values, a company that isn't afraid to invest in shows like mine, a company that is veteran-owned and serves veterans. So what are you waiting for? Switch to Pure Talk in as little as 10 minutes and start saving today. Their U.S. customer service team is waiting to serve you. Go to puretalk.com slash Walsh, and right now you'll save an additional 50% off your first month. That's puretalk.com slash Walsh to get connected now. Again, puretalk.com slash Walsh to start off the year saving on wireless with a company that you can be proud of. A few days ago, more than a dozen gunmen, some of them carrying grenades, stormed a television station in Ecuador. And you might have seen some of the dramatic footage on social media already. The attackers delivered this message, quote, we are on air, so you know that you cannot mess with the mafia. And in Ecuador, that appears to be true. Just a few years ago, Ecuador was among the safest countries in all of Latin America, but Beginning in 2020, that began to change, and it changed very quickly. From 2020 to 2022, the murder rate in Ecuador jumped by nearly 250%. Again, that's 250%. Political candidates now routinely get shot in the street. Car bombings are not uncommon. Just last year, a leading presidential candidate was gunned down, leaving a campaign rally. What happened to Ecuador is pretty clear. It doesn't take a foreign policy expert to figure this out. The country's ports, with access to the Pacific Ocean were taken over by drug traffickers and cartels who rapidly gained enormous power. That's why the majority of murders in the country take place in coastal towns. It's also why the presidential candidate was targeted. He promised to order the military to secure the ports, so he was assassinated. And now you can't even watch a television broadcast in Ecuador without seeing masked gunmen behind the anchor's desk. Now, this isn't to say Ecuador is a simple case or one that's directly comparable to any other country, but the top-line conclusion isn't hard to draw, and it's this. When you don't defend your country's borders, chaos follows very quickly. Now, a lot of institutions that you take for granted, whether they're presidential elections or news broadcasts, uh, they suddenly become uh, unreliable, to put it mildly. Things you thought were unthinkable uh, begin to happen. And before you know it, you are displaced in your own country, no matter who you voted for. The residents of Brooklyn, New York, now understand that concept very well, or at least they should. Because this week, James Madison High School in Brooklyn canceled classes so that busloads of hundreds of illegal migrants could move into the school during bad weather. 
School functions that had been planned for months were postponed. Uh, Students were told that instead of coming to class, they should log on to the internet and learn remotely, which is to say, as we know from the remote learning experiment during COVID, that they won't learn anything at all. This is so hard to believe. It's so contrary to the very concept of a sovereign nation that uh, I I think it, it, it bears repeating. New York just ordered a public high school to displace American students, children who have every right to be in this country, in order to house criminal foreigners who cross the border illegally. I mean, it's hard to believe it's real, but we know it's real because the parents of students at James Madison High School have been filming what's happening. Uh, Watch. So that's a parent watching as the city, which she funds with her tax dollars, buses in hundreds of illegal aliens into her child's school. These are foreigners who haven't been vetted. No one has any idea who these people even are. But even if we did know exactly who these migrants were, it doesn't matter. They don't have a right to be in this country, much less in our schools. But in that footage, you see the city ushering these migrants into the school. And you can hear someone chastising this woman for daring to be upset about it. Our children, American children, should be the nation's top priority. I mean, that's so obvious it shouldn't need to be said, but we are putting adult foreigners above our own children. It is madness. And they're doing this at literal gunpoint, by the way. And all the parents can do is film, or they'll be arrested and charged with with hate crimes, probably. So that's what some of them did. For the past 48 hours, parents have, uh, have taken video of uh, government agents moving equipment into their children's high school, including cots, so they can sleep in the gym and the hallways. You maybe never expected that schools would become refugee camps in an alleged first world country, but that's what's happening. Watch. Oh, this is cots. This is beds they're bringing in food. Why not? I got to see where my tax dollars are going. Hold on. By the way, it's great that there are a few parents out there who are filming this and are expressing their outrage. But the fact that every parent isn't out there protesting, the fact that there are only a few, is pathetic in and of itself. Now, there might be a reason for some of that, which is that uh, the media isn't talking about this. You're not going to find that footage on the national news or even the local news. 
We checked with Libs of TikTok, the account that posted these clips, and she says that outside of Newsmax, nobody has tried to license these videos. You know, a few days ago, we played on the show a video, you may remember, of some random female track runner beating some random guy in a race. And that video was picked up by dozens of outlets, including the Today Show. But this story, which is arguably slightly more important than a casual race between random college kids, isn't getting anywhere close to the same. It's getting no attention. I checked to see if CNN or MSNBC or The Washington Post ran a story on this at all. And, and no, they didn't cover it. They didn't cover it at all. No media organizations, even the ones that claim to focus entirely on big events in the city of New York, are tracking down the parents to hear exactly what's happening here. But Libs of TikTok did, and she just spoke to one parent who's been watching all of this with horror. Listen to that. We don't know what they're carrying around in them. They're going to be all over that building. It's 1,900 of them. And another parent was also saying that they can come in, they can stash drugs, they can stash weapons, whether it's a gun or a knife or whatever, because I'm sure you're aware there was a stabbing at Floyd Bennett with these migrants. Mm-hmm. And they can stash these things in the school. And God forbid, like when the, the kids go back to school tomorrow, one of these kids find this, whether it's drugs or a weapon. We were we were we were assured that the building is going to be completely sanitized, but we're not there. And that's why it was very disturbing to have one of the teachers come on and say that um, if you if you parents are so concerned, send your kids in with wipes sanitizing wipes and, and, and Lysol spray. That's disgusting. A teacher said that at the board meeting? At the meeting. At the meeting. Yes. Wow. That's like a slap in the face. Yes. And and she also made it seem like, why are we making a big deal about this? One day of remote learning is not going to hurt anyone that we did it for a year and a half. Apparently, she's completely missing the point here. I mean, <sighs> I love having my kids with me. It's not the fact that they're with us. Yes, thank God I have the ability to be home with my with my child. It's the principle behind this. <clears throat> so uh, just to recap, the school is telling parents to send their students to school with sanitizing wipes and Lysol to clean up after the illegal immigrants that they were forced to abandon the school for. You know, just in case the fumigation efforts aren't sufficient. So uh, I'll... Our kids, or if you are in Brooklyn, your kids are going to be the janitors cleaning up after the illegal immigrants. And they're telling the parents to shut up about the whole situation because COVID, uh, you know, COVID lockdown set the precedent. They did it during COVID. Even though it was extraordinarily damaging to the kids during COVID, and and everybody knows that now and recognizes it. Anybody with any sense recognized it at the time. But if you were wondering why the left was so intent on implementing those lockdowns, well, there's your answer. They wanted a precedent they could use in the future. And already they're using it in order to house illegal migrants in public school. Now, three years ago, if anybody on the right had said that the left would use the COVID precedent to turn public schools into homeless encampments for illegal migrants, uh, they would have been called an insane conspiracy theorist. And now here we are. I mean, this is a level of civil disorder that's so extreme that would have been so unthinkable just a few years ago that it defies any kind of traditional political analysis. This is destruction that doesn't benefit any particular political party over another. It's destruction that cal- it's calibrated to destroy the entire foundation of this country. And if you don't believe that, consider the fact that just a few months ago, 
illegal migrants in New York City started encroaching on the turf of the single most reliable voting bloc for the Democratic Party, which is black people on welfare. And these migrants started showing up early to snag their handouts, which enraged the uh, black residents of New York. Again, this is like something out of a, a sketch comedy show. It would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Watch. In one neighborhood in Queens between NYCHA tenants and newly arrived migrants. Wow, tensions are growing with not enough food to go around. Why do we have to take the butt of everything, okay? This community here is already suffering. The residents living in NYCHA's Queensbridge houses look forward to the mobile food pantries that show up weekly. But over the past year, they have witnessed 8,000 migrants move into their neighborhood, and they have also noticed the migrants are also starting to take their stuff. They was first online for the turkeys this morning. If they tell you to be there at 11 o'clock, you get there like 10.30, 10.45, but they already out there. The line is from over there to over here. Free food giveaways, especially during the holidays, have become a source of tension between longtime New Yorkers struggling to get by and newly arrived migrants who are using the system to survive. A month ago, one altercation got so heated between a resident and a migrant, someone ended up in the hospital. We would never turn anyone away for a meal, but there simply just is not enough for both NYCHA residents and the migrant shelter residents. Now, it's easy to say, and uh, it makes sense to say that, hey, I mean, you people voted for this, and you're getting what you voted for, which is true. But at the same time, it should still infuriate you, no matter where it's happening, to see foreigners from another country who don't belong here and aren't supposed to be here legally just showing up and taking whatever they want, cutting the line, literally in front of actual American citizens. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to dismiss everything that's happening in New York City, the migrants taking over the high schools, the hotels, the welfare lines, as maybe somehow an isolated incident. But it's not. This, this is happening in major cities that are nowhere near the southern border. It's not just New York that's starting to look like Ecuador. Here's what Chicago's O'Hare Airport looks like right now. Okay, the airport, one of the biggest in the country, is now walling off entire sections so that they can be used as migrant encampments. Just watch a few seconds of this. All right. Now, you uh, you might see that, and it goes on and on, and they, they have actual areas that are, that are, uh, that are uh, as I said, walled off. And, and granted, people in airports already tend to splay out on the ground and treat terminals like campgrounds. But, I mean, this is taking that to another level. And, and, and nobody ever voted to turn O'Hare International Airport into a migrant shelter. Okay? No politician ran on that platform. There was no referendum. It wasn't even a poll. It just happened without anybody's consent. The government is now ceding critical infrastructure to foreigners who have no right to be in the country. Pretty soon, they're not simply going to be ceding public buildings. They'll take private property too. Already the government is laying the groundwork for that. And once again, COVID set the precedent. Remember when the Biden administration banned evictions? He effectively nationalized the rental properties. The CDC took over and decided whether people were allowed to be evicted or not. Now public officials are once again suggesting that private property must be surrendered, and uh, this time for the benefit of illegal migrants. Just a few months ago, politicians in Massachusetts and New York 
demanded that residents offer up their homes to foreign nationals. Watch. It is my vision uh, to take the next step to this, to go to the faith-based uh, locales, and then move to uh, private residents. Uh, there are residents who are suffering right now because of economic challenges. They have spare rooms. Uh, they have locales. And if we can find a way to get over the 30-day rule and other rules that government has in, in its place, we can take that $4.2 billion, $4.3 it may be now, that we potentially have to spend, and we can put it back in the pockets of everyday New Yorkers, everyday houses of worship, instead of putting it in the pockets of corporations. Most importantly, if you have an extra room or suite in your home, please consider hosting a family. Safe housing and shelter is our most pressing need. Become a sponsor family. You can contact the Brazilian Workers Center for more information on how you can step up if you're willing to have an additional family be part of your family. If you're a local official, a college president, a business owner or a faith leader with an available building or space in your community, please work with us to offer it as a shelter site. If you're a social service provider, please consider becoming an emergency assistance homeless shelter provider. Our resources are stretched thin there as well. And if you're a hotel or a motel owner, consider opening it up for emergency assistance. If you're a landlord or a property owner, we can use you too. We can connect you with service providers to help transition families into permanent housing. Everyone has something they can offer. If you're a landlord or property owner, we can use you too. Very appropriately phrased, isn't it? We can, not even like we can use your property, we can use you. That's what they're saying in Massachusetts. They're, they're not telling these migrants to get out of the country. They're not talking about enforcing immigration law. Instead, they're telling American citizens to surrender their property. This is one of the things Americans fought the Revolutionary War to prevent. That's why the Constitution prohibits quartering troops in people's homes. It used to be that everybody agreed that your home was sacrosanct. Democrats don't see it that way anymore. So what we're seeing is no longer abstract. This is no longer a debate about illegal immigration and open borders or whatever. What we're seeing are illegal migrants, criminals, taking over your airports and your child's schools. At this rate, it won't be too long until these criminals start walking into television stations with grenades. It is no longer unthinkable for the government to nationalize private property to quarter these foreign nationals in homes and businesses. This is the inevitable endpoint of a country that doesn't defend its borders or enforce its laws. Ecuador and the United States are separated by thousands of miles, trillions of dollars of GDP, but they have one thing in common, which is that criminals will take over if they are given the opportunity. The only real difference in that respect is that in this country, unlike Ecuador, the federal government will overtly help the criminals take control. They won't even try to hide it. And once criminals take over in this country, as in Ecuador, they will not respect the rights of children to go to school or the rights of candidates to run for office or the rights of journalists to broadcast their news reports. They respect and understand only one thing, which is power. And right now, all they see is weakness. And they will exploit that weakness until one of two things happen. Either every building in this country becomes a potential migrant encampment or Every one of these invaders is sent back by force to wherever they came from. Now let's get to our five headlines. Are you struggling with back taxes or unfiled returns this year? 
The IRS is escalating collections by adding 20,000 new agents. In these challenging times, your best defense is to use Tax Network USA. With over 14 years of experience, Tax Network USA has saved their clients over a billion dollars in back taxes. They specialize in negotiating with the IRS and aim to reduce your debt significantly. Tax Network USA doesn't just negotiate, they protect your assets from IRS seizures and manage your yearly returns for ongoing compliance. Importantly, they are uh, licensed to help with all state tax issues regardless of where you live in the U.S. Seize control of your financial future now and don't let tax issues overpower you. Contact Tax Network USA for immediate relief and expert guidance. Call 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com Walsh. Turn to Tax Network USA and find your path to financial peace of mind. That's tnusa.com Walsh. So last night there was a debate uh, between DeSantis and Haley. Trump counterprogrammed that with a town hall on Fox News. And Vivek counterprogrammed all of them on Tim Pool's show. So there was uh, one program and two counterprograms. To be honest, I didn't watch any of it uh, because I was playing with Legos with my kids. And that's how I spent my evening, uh, which I think is probably an evening, evening better spent. At this point, everything's kind of baked in, at least for me. Uh, I, I know how I, how I feel about DeSantis and Haley and Trump. There isn't anything that any of them could say at this point that's going to change how, well, th- there are plenty of things they could say that would change how I feel about them one way or another, but most likely they will continue saying all the same stuff that they've been saying the whole time. So my feelings in that case will not change. And uh, I have to believe that, that probably most voters are in the same boat. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I will just say, though, that I, I understand why politically Trump is, is uh, not doing these debates. Like politically, I mean, there's no question that politically it has proven to be the best strategy. He's still far ahead, far, far ahead in the polls. And uh, it, there's no evidence that I can see that, that not doing the debates has hurt him politically. Although, even so, it is ridiculous and embarrassing that the guy was on TV at the same time as DeSantis, a few miles away from him, attacking him, but refused to go say any of it to his face. Like, you know, it's not my worth, worth my time debating you, so instead I'll stand off in the corner and talk crap about you. Uh, to this audience, but not to you. I mean, it's it's not exactly a position of strength and confidence is all I will say. Now, there was one big political story, though. The impact uh, of this story was felt from miles away when Chris Christie dropped out of the race. And now there's certainly going to be a chaotic feeding frenzy as the other candidates try to scoop up Chris Christie's 0.03% of support. And the funny thing about Chris Christie is that you know, he very transparently only entered the race to attack Trump. That, he was very clear about that. He was supposed to be sort of like the attack dog who, who took it to Trump constantly. And yet, despite that being his whole MO, he didn't have even one single memorable or effective moment of attacking Trump. I can't think of one. There wasn't even one moment. Like, he didn't land a single blow on Trump. Uh, there, I, I can't remember. Was there even one devastating line that tr- that uh, this, uh, Christie delivered at any point about Trump? Uh, no. So his 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 entire point of being there was to go after Trump, and he could not have failed any more miserably than he did. Though the real news from this announcement, if there was any news, was the alleged 
I emphasize alleged um, hot mic moment behind the scenes. So after he made this announcement, I think it was after, maybe it was before. I don't know. I didn't watch the announcement. But after he made the announcement, uh, he left the stage and he was he was talking to somebody, Chris Christie, uh, talking to somebody else, but his mic was still on. And that's when we heard this. People don't want to hear it, Wayne. They don't want to hear it. We know we're right, but they don't want to hear it. Right. And and there's, you know, we couldn't have been any clearer. Right. We couldn't have been any more, any right. more director, worked any harder. So, yeah. you know. And let's not forget she spent $68 million. Yeah. I mean, oh. like well, when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV. Spent $68 million so far, $59 million by DeSantis, and we spent 12 I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked, and you and I both know it. She's not up to this. she hasn't even been She's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah, and, oh, yeah. And he's, gonna, he's still going to carry out, right? Yes, always. I, t- you know, I talked to De- DeSantis called me, petrified that I would— He's probably getting out after Iowa. Well, now, uh, I'll let you decide for yourself there, but uh, Chris Christie has been in the media. Well, he's been in politics and around the media for 30 years. Do you believe that he's he, he really forgot that he had a mic on? You don't forget that, okay? As somebody who wears a mic every day, you don't, you don't forget that you have the mic on. And then, and then, so he forgot that he had a mic on or forgot that it was hot, didn't know it was hot. And then just so happened to say a bunch of stuff that would be embarrassing for his rivals, but not for him personally. He comes off well because he he's saying, well, I told the truth and they didn't want to hear it. And we, we, we worked hard. <laughs> so he said a bunch of things that are flattering for him. He didn't know. He didn't know. You know, the, the world got a glimpse of what he says behind the scenes. And it just so happens that for that 60 second period, he was saying things flattering to himself, but embarrassing for his rivals. What an enormously convenient accident for Chris Christie. But who knows? Maybe it really was an accident. Maybe, maybe he is dumb enough to not remember that he's wearing a microphone. I don't know. But I, I tend to be skeptical of it. All right. Uh, Daily Signal has this report. The House of Representatives voted Wednesday, the Ohio House of Representatives, I should say, voted Wednesday to override Republican Governor Mike DeWine's veto of a bill that would protect children from irreversible transgender sex change procedures and medical interventions such as puberty blockers and hormones. The state's House of Representatives met on Wednesday to vote 65 to 28 to override the governor's veto and now heads to the state Senate. Activists and organizations that backed the bill were quick to celebrate the news on Wednesday. Um, while other organizations, uh, left-wing activist organizations like the ACLU, uh, condemned it and uh, so on and so forth. So great job by Ohio Republicans here. This is like the second time in a couple of years that we've had uh, a Republican state house override the veto of a Republican governor. And it's easy to take this for granted, but historically speaking, this is very unusual. You know, it's not something that happens very often um, where, where, you know, well, it's not often that a veto is overridden, but especially when it's a party overriding the veto of a guy who's also in that party. And yet it has happened multiple times now on this particular issue, which is a reflection of just how, uh, just to what extent the tide has turned on this issue. Now, yes, as we've seen, there are still cowardly, spineless, jellyfish Republicans like DeWine and Hutchinson in uh, Alabama or, or, or Arkansas, Alabama, 
one of those two, uh, who are you know terrified of the LGBT lobby and and they're not going to get on board. So you still have those kinds of guys. But most elected Republicans are fully on the same page on this. So, which means that the trans agenda in the span of just a few years went from something that Republicans were too afraid to talk about, you know, too afraid to even acknowledge, to now it's something that uh, most elected Republicans will aggressively attack, even to the extent of overriding a Republican governor's veto in order to pass a bill that the LGBT lobby says is not only bigoted, but genocidal. And Republicans are doing it anyway. So that, that is a sea change, an, inc- an incredibly significant one, um, it, unlike anything we've seen in politics in my lifetime, certainly. And then you have to ask, what does Mike DeWine get out of it? You know, that's always the, the tragic story with these sorts of things um, and, and why he should be a lesson for everybody else, just like Asa Hutchinson. They caved to the left, and then they were overridden anyway. So they they shamed themselves for all eternity by trying to defend child castrators, and uh, it was all for nothing. The legislative branch said, okay, well, we don't need you. Get out of the way. Yeah, we, we, we'll do it without you. It's like, basically, the, the legislative branch is saying, we, we are going to do this thing where we make it illegal to abuse children, and you can join in and sign on the dotted line or not. And Mike DeWine and Ace Hutchinson said, no, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, and now what do they do? You know, where do they go? They're done in Republican politics. The left still hates them. They'll never be accepted there. So they gave up their credibility, their integrity, their souls, their political careers for nothing. They got nothing out of it. Many such cases. Okay, I have a, I want to play this for you. This is a news report, local news report out of the Communist Nation of California, uh, which is on the way to banning tackle football for children. And uh, I have plenty to say about it, but first let's play the news report. Here's the local ABC affiliate. For kids under the age of 12, tackle football could soon be a relic of the past in California. It's all thanks to a new bill authored by Sacramento Assemblymember Kevin McCarty that's making its way through the state legislature. When we look at kids under the age of 12, tackle football is a high-risk sport. Dr. Brian Feely is the head of sports medicine at UCSF. He says he supports the bill because of the elevated risk of concussions that comes with tackle football. Feely says these risks are especially heightened for young kids whose brains are in their most important stages of development. You're at higher risk for anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Feely says instead of tackle football, flag football is a far safer option. Not everyone agrees with this bill, though. That includes some local coaches here in Oakland who tell me they fear that it will disproportionately impact young kids of color. We do a lot of low-income families, a lot of... uh families that go through struggles maybe not have a male figure at home. Chewy Orr and Damon Gardner are the coaches of youth tackle football team, the Oakland Dynamites. They tell me for teams like theirs, football is more than just a sport. It's a way to teach kids about things like friendship, leadership, and camaraderie. They also say sports besides football also carry the risk of injuries. You can jump in basketball, you can fall down. 
Hit your head. Got concussion. Look at the picture. You playing baseball, they throwing 90 miles per hour at you. And as for flag football, coaches Chewy and Damon say they don't think it's a suitable alternative. Flag football just doesn't carry enough kids. We have 30 kids. Flag football typically don't about have, have maybe have about 15. Okay, so, so uh, maybe it won't surprise you to learn that uh, I hate this idea of banning tackle football. And it's something that you hear that California obviously is first up to the to the plate. Um, but uh, it, it, it's there's support for it all across the country. And my, my prediction is that if, uh, if California does it, then uh, a bunch of other states will follow. And uh, I think it's terrible. And, and this probably will surprise you. I actually agree with the claim that those coaches made that this will disproportionately impact minorities. So this is, this is the one time where I think that argument holds water. And it's, and not only holds water, but it's an important argument. It's not, it's not the most important argument. It's not the first argument to be made, but there is truth to it. So we'll get to that in a moment. But generally, um, you know, this is a reflection of our feminized society. Yet again, it is a very feminine, womanly thing to look at a sport where boys are tackling each other and say, oh, that's too dangerous. That they're going to hurt themselves. We need to get rid of that. Now, I understand why women feel that way. Like, I don't hold it against women for feeling it. My wife feels that way about tackle football for, for kids at that age. And, and that's okay. She's a woman. I, like, I get it. Um, but that's also why women are not the foremost authorities on what sorts of activities are best for boys, any more than men are authorities on what sort of uh, activities are best for girls. So w- when you're trying to decide if a certain activity is good or appropriate for a boy, a woman should not be the first person that you ask. Now, except the problem is, and I know you'll point out, well, the guy that, that authored this bill is a guy. It wasn't even a woman. True, because we live in this feminized society, especially in California, so even the men have the mentality of women. I know there are plenty of men who support this. I talked about it on Twitter today. There's plenty of men coming out. Well, yeah, it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous for the kids. We can't do that. Um, so, it, And if that's your mentality, like you, you have the mentality of a woman. You're looking at this like a woman. Um, saying, well, why can't they just play flag football instead? Well, because flag football is lame. Okay, that's why. Because girls can play. You know why? You know why we don't have boys play flag football? We let them play. Because girls can play flag football. If you change it to flag football, you're going to lose half of your participants, like the coaches said. And half of the ones that you end up with will be girls. And it's not a coincidence that, you know, they were showing the footage of uh, the B-roll of Kids playing tackle football was all boys. And then they switched over to show a B-roll of flag football. It was a bunch of girls, right? So football will go from being a masculine sport for boys who, who want to go out there and tackle and, and be rough to a fun activity for girls and boys to do together, which is to say it will lose all of its value. And I'm not saying that there's no value in activities for girls and boys to do together. What I'm saying is that Football isn't meant to be that sort of activity. And, and generally, organized sports in general are not supposed to be that sort of activity. So here are a few facts. Um, first of all, tackle football for kids is not that dangerous. Uh, there is this very, uh, again, very womanly panic over tackle football. It's too dangerous. They're hitting each other. 
it's not that bad, actually, especially for young kids. In fact, for kids in that age range, like the exact age range that they are banning it for or going to ban it for, it, it is, is especially safe at that age range. In fact, football is safer than other sports like baseball. Did you know that? Did you know that more kids die from baseball injuries every year than from football injuries under the age of 12? Which in a way is kind of easy to do because like no kids die at, under the age of 12 from football injuries, but it does happen in baseball. Um, why is that? Well, because at the age of 8, 9, 10, kids are not strong enough, they're not fast enough, they're not powerful enough to seriously damage each other from running into each other. You know, you don't see, like, for the most part, these big NFL-style hits happening at the between nine-year-olds on the football field. Now, on the other hand, a line drive to the face can kill you at any age, and it does kill kids. So, so I mean, that really should be the end of the conversation. It, it really should be. Baseball is more likely to kill a 10-year-old than football. Just a fact. It is. And I'm not advocating that we ban baseball. Not at all. I'm only trying to make the point here. And also, by the way, because these people are morons, they don't understand that, that the worst thing you could do is ban tackle football for young ages, but it's still legal for the Because now you're taking kids and they're not going to learn, you know, when they're, still, when they're still young and they're not very fast and strong, they're not going to learn how to tackle. And then you bring them into high school and now they're bigger and much stronger and faster and they've never learned how to tackle, and now you're saying, all right, kids, go crazy. Now you're going to end up with a lot more injuries because of that. And, but second, the, the, the second point, which I think is the broader point that's important, is that, is that, as I've argued many times, society needs to have outlets for, for male aggression and energy. Okay, Society must have outlets for that. And yes, the outlets are going to be violent. And, and if you have a feminine mentality, you will look at that and say, well, that's just, that's not good. It's violent. But what you have to understand is that it's, you don't have a choice. Okay. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Boys are aggressive. They have a lot of energy. They, they are violent. Okay. That's just how boys are. That's natural. And so as a society, you are going to experience that one way or another. It's, it is going to come out one way or another. So do we harness it? Do we use it? Do we direct it towards a goal, which is what sports are all about? It's also what about a lot of these playground activities that most of them have been banned too. You know, of course, they don't play dodgeball or anything like that in schools, but that's what that's about too. It's like, what's dodgeball? It's just take a ball and fling it at your friend as hard as you can and try to hit him. That's the whole fun of dodgeball. Um, and we take all that away. You know, my, my boys, uh, 10 and 7, they tackle each other all the time. They do it without pads, okay, without, like, the training. Um, they, they do it in a context that's probably potentially more dangerous. Do I tell them to stop doing that? I mean, yeah, sometimes if it's, if it's an inappropriate context, I don't let them just run rowdy whenever they want. But, but generally, I don't have a rule that says you can never roughhouse. I don't have that rule. Of course I don't have that rule because they're boys, and this is an important part of being a boy. It's not an important part of being a girl. Okay, girls don't do this. And I know I'm going to hear from like the one parent out of a, seven million who says, oh, my girl's very, she, 
no, nine-year-old girls are not getting together and recreationally beating the crap out of each other. That's what nine-year-old boys do. And uh, they have that energy. They have that propensity for violence. And football is one way of harnessing it. Tackle football especially, specifically. That's maybe its greatest value, especially for kids. And yet one by one, as a society, where we are taking away all of the healthy, organized outlets for male aggression. How is that working out? How's it working out? Like, are we ending up with less violence and less aggression in society? No, we're not. We're just ending up with a lot more of it um, that, you know, we're ending up with the kind of violence that, that doesn't happen on the dodgeball field or a football field. And that brings us to the, the point those coaches were making about the disparate impact. And the one time I'll agree with that point, because as they said, young black boys especially need these kinds of outlets. And why do they need it? Well, because many of them don't have fathers at home. And, uh, you know, uh, fathers, if you have a father at home who's active and involved, then one of the things a father does is, is, is to help a boy understand how to take all that energy and channel it in healthy ways. Uh, if you don't have a father, then you don't have that. And that's why, in particular, those kinds of boys, tackle football is very, very good for them. Even if it, even with the dangers and the risks, it's still very good. And on top of that, there's the male role models, the male influences that they get from their coaches. I mean, from a lot for a lot of these boys, uh, their coach is the only father figure they're ever going to have. And so we should not be doing a single thing to try to take that away. We should be encouraging a lot more of it. You go to a place like Oakland. The more of those kids you can get into sports, the better. Every single one of those kids is playing sports. Fantastic. You know, you should be, you should be open. You should be creating more football leagues, not taking them away. Um, and football is is uh, just you know there are other sports, of course. There's that that are you know perfectly great, healthy outlets for that kind of male energy. Baseball is one of them. Basketball. But football is uh, is just different, and if you don't watch football, if you haven't played it, you might not really understand this. But it's got it just it has a different it has a like kind of militaristic feel to it. You know, the football players talk about going out and going to war, and and uh, I mean they're not literally going to war, of course, but it has that it just has that kind of feel to it, and that's one of the things that draws young men to it, and it's why it can be an incredibly important um, outlet and influence for young men, and uh, and but you know. So we got to take it away. The worst thing we do is young men are not allowed to have anything. They just can't have anything. Because we look at everything from this, from this pathetic, weak, feminized mentality. And, and we say, that's, that's upsetting. This is a little too rough. Calm down, kids. Here, take some drugs. We'll, get, we'll, we'll drug you instead to calm you down. All right. Finally, um, sad news to report. From the New York Post, the iconic chewing gum Fruit Stripe will be discontinued. Its manufacturer, Ferrara Foods, announced this week the candy company, which also produces Red Hots and Runts, says the move was a difficult decision, but they are, uh, as they say, um, I think they said sunsetting, whatever the phrase was they use. Anyway, it's, uh, they're getting rid of this, of this brand, so Fruit Stripe gum is going away, which is very tragic, and I know that I'm talking about this right now, and uh, many younger people are like, what, what is that? What is Fruit Stripe gum? Well, it's because you damn kids will never understand Fruit Stripe gum. Uh, you'll never know what it was like 
to get two quarters from your mom and go buy yourself a pack of Fruit Stripe and you chew a strip of gum for 10 seconds and it loses its flavor and tastes like plastic. And so you spit it out and you, you had the next stick. And before you know, and, and within 30 minutes, you chewed through the whole pack of Fruit Stripe gum. And that was the highlight of your day. You know, those 10 seconds were rapturous. But you, you damn kids will never understand that. And the best part is that the, the rappers were also temporary tattoos. And uh, the rappers doubled as tattoos. Was that safe? Was it sick? Because like the ink from that tattoo was wrapped around a food product that you were eating. Like, was that safe to do that? Probably not. But this was a different time. You know, our other favorite gum in the 90s was Big League Chew, which simulated uh, chewing tobacco. And, you know, you gave that to kids so they could pretend they were doing It was a way to introduce kids in elementary school to chewing tobacco. We also had candy cigarettes. Uh, I remember getting the candy cigarettes when I was, like, my parents would buy candy cigarettes for me. And I would take the candy cigarette. I think, wow, smoking cigarettes is so cool. Like, cigarettes are the coolest. And, uh, and I knew that I wanted to start smoking. And my parents said, not until you're 12, young man. And uh, this is how we were raised at the time. And anyway, the, rapper, the rappers had tattoos on them. So you'd chew the gum and then you'd tattoo yourself with the rapper. And uh, you'd walk around looking super cool. And you'd show off your bicep and you'd go check it out. Just had the blue one, fruit stripe, no big deal. And the other kids would go, that's your, holy shit, that is awesome. That's what they would say. And uh, that's what we did. Because look, we didn't have YouTube, all right? We didn't have... Uh, Fortnite. We, did, we didn't have anything but our fruit stripe gum, a partially deflated dodgeball, and a hose to drink out of. And parents who sent us out at 7 a.m. and did not want to see us back in the house and didn't care what we did for the next 12 hours as long as we were home by like 7. That was, uh, that was the life. Let's get to Was Walsh. Did you know a baby's heartbeat uh, begins at just three weeks? At five weeks, you can hear it on an ultrasound. By six weeks, the baby's eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to move his or her hands. I'm telling you this because when a mother who is considering abortion is introduced to her child via ultrasound, when she hears the heartbeat for the first time, she's twice as likely to choose life. And that's how Preborn rescued 200 babies every day. They provide mothers with free ultrasounds so that they can meet the life that is growing inside them. Preborn needs our help. To save these precious souls, for just 28 bucks, you can sponsor an ultrasound and save a life. And if you become a monthly sponsor, you'll receive stories and ultrasound pictures that uh, of the lives that you help save. All gifts are tax-deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, baby. Or go to preborn.com slash Walsh. That's preborn.com slash Walsh. Wrong. Vanilla Flava says, what is wrong with POC or women going to flight school? They're going to get the same training that the majority white male pilots do, right? Or are you saying women in POC can't learn the same? At some point, every pilot will only have a couple hundred hours of flight time as new pilots. Um, I am fine with anyone trying to go to flight school, okay? Uh, my problem, you know, anyone at all. My problem is is when efforts are made to increase the proportion of a certain population in the cockpit. Because in order to do that, you are going to have to lower the standards. And how do we know that? Well, it's because 
before they started with these efforts, there was one standard, and they said, here's how you become a pilot, here's what you need to do. And it just so happened that with those standards, it was mostly white men uh, who, uh, who, who became pilots. Stands to reason that if you just continue along like you were before, you're going to end up with mostly white men. So if you decide that it's that that there is anything else other than skill and competence that is a priority now, and that you want to increase the proportion of a certain demographics, it means that you're going to start um, messing with the standards. That's the way. That's the way it goes. This is the way it has happened in every institution that has done this, and that's the issue. Zach Ryder says, don't you believe DEI enhances workplace harmony and encourages a broader range of skills, ultimately contributing to better safety standards in the airline industry? I have to assume, I mean, I got to assume that's a joke. (laughs) That has to be a joke. I'm going to tell myself just so I can sleep better at night that it's a joke. Does DEI increase workplace harmony? Well, there is no evidence of that. Does it make, uh, does it, does it, have a, do you end up with a broader range of skills, better safety standards? No. And I mean, look, I've given this challenge before and I invite anyone to try to meet it. Okay. Show me an example of any institution. It doesn't have, just have to be the airlines. Any institution that has become measurably better, more effective, more competent, more productive after introducing these DEI standards. Give me an example. Okay, show me the, the, the institution and say, well, here you go. Here's what, here's what they were doing before, DEI, and now here, look at where they are. Uh, that's my challenge. I don't think you'll be able to meet it. Gettysburg Address says, LOL, Walsh doesn't think minorities are capable to fly passenger planes safely. One of his worst takes. Uh, okay, so you get the idea. I, I, are people really confused by this? Like all of the many thousands of words that I have said on this topic, and that is how you interpret it? Like, are you actually confused? Are you actually this stupid? Or are you pretending? 80s New Waver says the Stanley Cups are either pink or red for Valentine's Day, and that's probably why guys want them. I don't even follow this story or care about these cups, but it's pretty obvious from watching one short clip. Wait, I'm okay. Guys want them for Valentine's Day, so I get because you're saying they're buying them as gifts for the. So I'm sorry. You think that guys are buying Valentine's Day gifts in January? You think that any guy in the world is saying to himself on like January 3rd, oh, that looks like a lovely gift for my wife for Valentine's Day. I think I'll go buy that now. That Literally no man has ever said that. I'm telling you right now, in the history of humanity, in the history of Valentine's Day, there has never been a Valentine's Day per- gift purchased by a man for a woman on January 3rd. It is, it is, it's never happened. Okay, in fact, I'll say this. No man in history has ever purchased a Valentine's Day gift before February 11th. That's the, that's the, and if you do that, I mean, look, I've, I've had a few, I don't want to brag. I've had a few Valentine's Day occasions where I have actually purchased my gift on, I've never done, but like February 12th. I've had a few February 12ths 
where I where I went and I purchased the gift. And I'm feel I'm like, wow, I'm I'm the greatest husband ever that I actually I can. It's two days ahead of time, and I'm out here buying a gift already. Um, but of course, 97% of us are buying the Valentine's Day gift on the way home from work on February 14th. But buying a Valentine's Day gift for your wife a month early is the gayest thing you could do. Don't do that. Because if, you, if, if it's January 3rd and you tell your wife, I got you Valentine's Day gift already, she's going to say, I, so you're gay. Well, that, that kind of ruins Valentine's Day, doesn't it? So I don't, I don't agree with your interpretation is what I'm trying to say. No, it's no question that we are living in a clown world. The characters in power are straight out of a carnival. Basic notions of right and wrong, justice, truth, and even reality itself have been thrown out the window. The world is coming to an end. How do we make sense of it? Join Jonathan Pajot in the new four-part series, uh, End of the World, as he explains why the world as we know it is ending, how to survive, and how we can plant the seeds for the next world today. Jonathan Pajot is an icon carver, public speaker, YouTuber, and good friend of Jordan Peterson. You might remember Pajot from his profoundly illuminating comments in Jordan's series on Exodus. Now he's back and will draw upon his deep knowledge of Christian tradition, stories, mythology, and history to explain the contradictions in our society, wacky phenomena, and how this pattern will reach its conclusion. In End of the World, you will receive a thoughtful framework to make sense of these confusing times and a roadmap to lead us out of the clown world and restore order. All episodes are available now exclusively on Daily Wire+. Plus. If you haven't become a member yet, this is the perfect time. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe, unmask the carnies, and see beyond the end. Watch End of the World today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. If you've watched anything that Hollywood has produced at any point over the past decade and a half or so, you have uh, no doubt noticed that movies and television shows are extremely diverse these days. And I mean that in the way that everybody means it when they use the term. I mean that movies and television shows are a lot less white. The entertainment industry, especially the parts of it that we can see on camera, are increasingly not white and not male, and especially not white male. In fact, you would think Hollywood productions are about as non-white and non-male as they can possibly be at this point. They've already loaded the cast of every movie and show uh, with as many people who are not white males as they can. If a white male historical figure appears in a movie, he's usually changed to black or some other race. But they can't take us out completely. I mean, after all, plenty of scripts still have characters who are villainous racists or alcoholic domestic abusers, and they at least want it to cast us for that. So, you know, we, we will always have some use in Hollywood. Yet, even if you think Hollywood is as diverse as it can be, it can always be more diverse because nothing is ever diverse enough, which is to say everything is always too white and too male, even when there are no white males left. And it's just the way things work, which is why major Hollywood stars have come out, come, uh, come out this week to call on Hollywood to update yet again their diversity and inclusion standards to make sure that another minority group is represented even more than it already is. CNN reports, quote, some top stars in Hollywood are among those calling for the Academy Motion Picture Arts and Science, the body behind the Academy Awards, to immediately add Jews to the organization's inclusion and diversity standards and are criticizing the group for the oversight. Actors including Tiffany Haddish, uh, Josh Gad, David Schwimmer, Deborah Messing, uh, Jennifer Goodwin, uh, Juliana Margulies, Maya Bialik, I don't even know who these people are, are among the nearly 300 Hollywood figures who signed an open letter to the Academy this week demanding that Jews be recognized as an underrepresented group. 
While we applaud the Academy's efforts to increase diverse and authentic storytelling, an inclusion effort that excludes Jews is both steeped in and misunderstands anti-Semitism, reads the letter obtained by CNN. The omission of Jews in the list of protected groups erases Jewish peoplehood and perpetuates myths of Jewish whiteness, power, and that racism against Jews is not a major issue or that it's a thing of the past. Uh, yes, by not specifically including Jewish people on a list of the most special groups of humans, they are erasing Jewish people. But of course, the same does not apply to white people. And for their purposes, as they make clear in the letter, Jews don't count as white this time. Because the answer to whether Jews are white changes for the left depending on the needs of the moment. In any case, the point is that, I mean, you cannot say that white males are being erased by not being mentioned in the inclusion standards. But other groups, I mean, literally any other group, is erased if they aren't mentioned. Again, this is just how it works, and you're supposed to simply accept it. Now, let me uh, just want to say a few things about this. First of all, it must be stated for the millionth time that representation in and of itself does not matter. Okay, The idea that every group needs to be represented in every context is absurd. Representative democracy is a system of government. It's a thing that exists in the political realm. It's not a reflection of how the entire rest of reality works or should work. So if, say, the state of South Carolina was suddenly deprived of the representation of its representation in Congress, that would be a severely unconstitutional and very significant problem. But if, say, a gay, disabled Pacific Islander watches a movie and doesn't see any gay, disabled Pacific Islanders depicted on screen for those 90 minutes, no constitutional violation has occurred. It is not a problem, significant or otherwise. So somewhere along the line, we got this idea that wherever you go and whatever you happen to be doing, you should always see people who look like you and share all of your demographic details. We got the idea that you, that you have somehow a right to be reflected by the world around you. Like, you, you need to see yourself, you need to have yourself reflected back to you by the world. But this idea is completely ridiculous and untenable. The only time a lack of representation uh, is really a problem is when that absence has been intentionally engineered by the exclusion of certain groups on the basis of their race, gender, or whatever. And in the name of representation, that's exactly what they're doing to white males. Now, all that said, as far as representation goes, we must note that Jewish people are definitely represented in Hollywood, okay? I don't know exactly how many Jews are involved in film productions, but I do know that it's certainly more than 2.4%. And given that Jews comprise 2.4% of the general public, in order for them to be perfectly represented in any particular industry, they need to make up 2.4% of that industry. And I don't think any serious person would claim that Jewish people are, in comparison to the general population, underrepresented by percentage in Hollywood. Now, the same is true of black people. Blacks are 13% of the population. They're also 13% of working actors. LGBT people are, by last count, 7% of the population. Again, it's hard to say exactly how many gays are in Hollywood, but it is definitely, without a, without a shadow of a doubt, more than 7%. A lot more. Women are 50% of the population. I can't remember the last time I saw a movie where fewer than 50% of the leads and major supporting characters were women. So if representation is the goal, then you have it. All of these groups have it. 
They have it in spades. They, they have, in many cases, significantly more than mere representation. Because if representation means anything, this is what it means or should mean. So even if I agree that every group should be represented everywhere, all that would mean is that the group's distribution in any given industry reflects its general population density. Again, the real world can never actually work this way, but, but this is what representation would mean, which means that if only 13% of the characters that you see on screen in any given year are black, then black people have been absolutely perfectly represented. If only 7% are gay, gays have been absolutely perfectly represented. If only 2.5% are Jewish, Jews have been absolutely perfectly represented. If only 50% are women, women, again, absolutely perfectly represented. If a large majority are white, well then, whites have been merely represented. Not overrepresented, simply represented. And that's exactly why the people running around crying representation, you know, it's obvious they actually want anything but representation. In fact, representation is the very last thing they want. They want over-representation. They want imbalance, asymmetry, disproportion. They want groups that are small minorities in real life to seem like they are majorities when you watch TV or turn on a movie. They want to diminish one group, white males, for the benefit of others. But Which is why, by the way, if you don't know anything about America and its population, and you watch a movie today, you will, and you watch a movie set in modern America, you will assume that, that black people are like 70% of the population. But they're not. They're only 13%. But you notice the other thing. That the representation police, they only want this kind of representation in certain contexts. Right? They don't want representation, and, uh, and, and, and in reality, they don't want representation. And whatever they do want, they don't really want it everywhere. Like, it's funny. You never hear anybody complaining about the fact that the majority of garbage men are white, and also almost all of them are male. Almost none of them are LGBT. Okay? Yeah, you never hear anyone bring that up. You never hear anyone calling for greater black or female or gay representation among roofers or plumbers or janitors or the guys who come and empty out porta potties. It's almost always mad. I don't think I've ever seen a, a woman do that. Over 80% of long-haul truck drivers are men, yet you don't often hear feminists clamoring to get more women involved in that business. Now, look, I'm sure that all of these industries have their own DEI efforts and their own harebrained scheme to diversify, but there certainly is not as much cultural emphasis on these areas. And you, you're not going to see any Hollywood celebrities writing a letter demanding that more women and gays be recruited into the ranks of public school janitors. Now, these jobs I just listed, they're all very important. They're all noble. They are all crucial to the functioning of society. Yet, the representation police overlook them entirely. Why? Because this, again, is not about representation. It's about reshaping America in the left's own image. An image where the dreaded straight white male is allowed to do what is perceived by the elites to be grunt work but where they're driven out of the high-paying jobs, the visible and powerful positions, the professions that the elites have deemed special. And that is the real agenda, which could not be more clear. 
And it's also why representation, as it is commonly conceived, is today canceled. I'll do it for the show today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.